listen to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. You're listening to the DC Public Library on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, DC. I'm your host, Maggie Gilmore, librarian at the DC Public Library. On today's DCPL Presents, I'm joined by Noelle Lopez, cultural anthropologist of the National Park Service, and Amanda Mackay, curator of the Fort Reno Concert Series, to talk about the parks, punk, and go-go. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thank you. As we recognize the 50th anniversary of 1968, the three of us today are going to talk about the history of D.C.'s Summer in the Parks and the impact that initiative has had on our local music culture. So, Noelle, tell us about your background as a native Washingtonian and as a D.C. music fan. Sure. Um, my family came here in the 50s and 60s, and they moved back and forth between Cuba. Uh, in the 1970s, my mother came here to the D.C. area. Uh, my dad came here in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and I was brought up like right down the street from here. Um, the, primar- the majority of my life, I early life I grew up in um, um, in Langley Park um, but my dad's church was on 16th and Columbia as a Southern Baptist minister so this street right here was where I spent the majority of my time walking up and down and passing this this um, hotel former church um, so it's really kind of trippy to be back here again here on Columbia Road yeah um, and then I guess my you know when it comes to music um, I had the good fortune of, um, or we had the good fortune of sharing a church with an African American Southern Baptist um, church or a congregation. And when we were all learning how to play instruments to, to accompany the, the, the hymns in church, um, the musicians uh, from the African American church took pity on us because we were really terrible. And they taught us how to play. And, um, you know, a couple years down the line, all of our church hymns started taking on like a swing beat and we started adopting more of a gospel sound. So, you know, from the beginning, uh, a lot of local musicians helped me out to like learn how to play. And that really tuned me into like the music that was going around here in the city at the time. So tell us about why there's a cultural anthropologist at the Park Service and what is the importance of documenting ethnographic resources in our parks. Sure. Um, so to begin, I'm glad there is a cultural anthropologist in the Park Service because uh, if not, I wouldn't be employed. But, um, or I'd be employed elsewhere, hopefully. But uh, the reason that there is a cultural anthropologist or there is cultural anthropology in the Park Service is because parks aren't just physical spaces. There are people who have uh, histories, who have heritage tied to these parks, to these lands. And so as an anthropologist, it, you know, one of our duties is to sort of understand the stakeholders who have um, um, uh, some tie to uh, a particular ethnographic resource at a park or at a park overall. So, for instance, um, out west, often uh, we think of this more on, uh, regarding um, indigenous communities and their association with lands. Um, but here in the east, we have sites like Meridian Hill, um, we have sites like um, um, the Anacostia, I'm not, uh, the Anacostia Park, um, that have communities that have been there 
for before the it was even a park and are still associated with it and still return. Um, and so one of the things that we do as anthropologists is we provide some information about who's using it, how they're using it, why they're using it, and um, facilitate the dialogue between the park managers and the stakeholders of the community so that, um, so that we progress forward together instead of at odds. Yeah, you've, you've started to touch upon here the difference between our maybe collective understanding of the national parks as these vacation destinations or wildlife preserves, but here in D.C., we have national park land that is um, impactful to the residents of this city. Um, have you? What what is that impact that you have seen and through your research, and how the parks land in the district has affected our community? Well, you know, one of the benefits that we have, even though other parks will claim that they're the first national park, um, since DC was um, was um, established as a federal city, there were park lands, parks throughout the city, green spaces. And so one of the great things about, so early on, is, or even to this day, is that these parks are still um, situated within neighborhoods in a way that it doesn't exist in other places. So just on just that alone, there's every neighborhood, or many neighborhoods in D.C. have a connection to a national park. Um, and that means that there's a canopy of trees, there's a green space that everyone has access to. Um, and but if the question is like the cultural side of it, um, I think, I mean, when you think of Meridian Hill slash Malcolm X Park, you think of the Drum Circle. There's a history there of civil rights of people starting marches from that site and going down to the National Mall. Um, you know, the National Mall is always the, the site of of gatherings on the national level, but also locally, we've we've, we've used it as well. Um, and so as individuals, as citizens, when we need places to gather, oftentimes those places, when they can't be on the street or um, at, at a home, are in public places like a park. And so parks have provided here in D.C. Um, a place for, for gathering, for activism, for just engaging, being engaged citizens. And what was the spark for you that inspired you to do all of this research and direct your work around summer in the parks? Um, it was, uh, I was always interested in like the punk scene in DC. Um, like there's like, a, if you're from the area, there's like a, almost a punk mythology from like, I used to live on Kenyon street and I had a, some neighbor who would always say, Oh yeah, down there, there's a, the Fugazi couch. Um, and then I realized it was just an old couch. But people were like, oh, yeah, this is like some great couch that's here. Um, you know, I was always interested in that sort of the, the idea that there was music that um, that touched people outside of the area, including Go-Go. I mean, I didn't realize that Go-Go was our thing until I was much older. And then I realized, oh, this is just something that's played here. Um, um, so uh, at some point I had a conversation with my uh, with a, my barber in Baltimore and he was telling me this story about, I told him that I was, I was um, interning at the Park Service. And he told me the story of like, oh, we used to go down to punk shows at a park in D.C. And they would always have these great shows. But, I, you know, he's like, I don't remember what park it was. And so I started working with the parks. And I started asking questions about like, what's the story behind D.C. and, and punk? And um, everyone would say, oh, you know, look at the archive of the files down from the 80s. And then finally someone said, oh, no, actually you should start in 68, because in 1968 was a year 
that the music programming really took off in, in community parks. And so as I peeled that back, I realized that there was this other story that I had to start with, and that sort of like the story of Summer in the Parks in 1968. And everything now is sort of building out to connecting it to Go-Go and then connecting it to punk. And, you know, we think of 1968 as an epic year in civil rights activism and history. Um, and you want to, would you talk about a little bit how uh, the recreation spaces have been a part of the civil rights story also? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know if it's, I mean, I think for some people uh, it might be new, but I think there's some residents who know this. Um, D.C. has had sort of a... Um, contentious history when it comes to African Americans using recreation spaces, um, both because of segregation and then also because in some locations because of a lack of spending funds to like keep things up. And so um, for the parks in 1949 or in the 1940s, um, parks were desegregated officially, but um, there was a lot of remnants, and when I say parks, I mean national parks. There's a lot of remnants of segregation in, in our regional parks. And so there's always a struggle. There's always been a, uh, you know, through the 50s and 60s, there's been a civil rights struggle, um, a, sort of pointing out the inequalities of usage, of allowing all communities to use parks. And so there's some sites that have sort of this history tied to them. Um, some of them have become national parks and weren't parks beforehand. For instance, Glen Echo Park, that was a site of, of what they called a riot, but really it was banning youth from using it and then forcing them to march from Glen Echo all the way back down to D.C. Um, you know, in Anacostia, there was a pool that was supposed to be desegregated. In 1949, there was a, a group of, of African-American youth showed up to go use a pool. And, a, you know, over 100 people showed up to, to sort of forcefully um, pull them out. And there was like... Uh, a riot ensued. They call it a riot, but I think it depends on the way your, your perspective of what that is. So, um, you know, these sites have always been, um, recreation's always been a location for, for these sorts of conflicts, and D.C. has a very um, interesting story to say about that, that sort of thing. And that's an incredible narrative that needs to be recognized. It looks like you are kind of doing that work is... Um, is the National Park Service supporting you in telling that story? And also, maybe this is where you could tell us about a, a reading list that was given out in 1968 to parks rangers. Sure. Um, yeah, the Park Service does, does support me in, in doing this research. And I think that, um, that um, so there's like two levels to this, right? There's the one that's like the historical thing that happened and how things have changed. And then there's like this other thing that is important to do, which is sort of a more... Um, reflexive sort of thing of like what what were we doing and how did we change because I think that often um, we think more of like things have changed and have improved and we don't consider the ways that what we did at the time and how those things have have how we've either evolved and changed or how we maintain things the same so one of the good things about this research is the park service allows me to not only talk about the historical change that's happened but then consider like our role in both um, promoting the change and then also sometimes maybe slowing it down or, or morphing it. Um, there's a second part to that question there. There's a reading list that oh, the National list. Parks Rangers yeah. were given in 1968. Yes, yeah, so, um, so after Summer in the Parks kind of kicks off, and Summer in the Parks is this like 
really amazing programming based around community effort of like bringing community members in to like talk about what sort of programming they want. Um, it became hugely su successful after 1968. And so the Park Service realized that, our regional Park Service realized that what they need to do is bring people from other quote unquote urban parks, but it, it was a variety of parks, into DC to learn like how to have a program that's similar to what we did here in DC elsewhere. So one of the things that they had after that first year was a reading list for park rangers to sort of understand the quote-unquote um, the urban mind or the mind of the people living in the city. And it was a, just a fascinating sort of cross-section of books, including um, uh, just things that, uh, that were very political at the time that I think even today we'd see them as extremely political. Uh, for instance, uh, a book by W.E. Du Bois, um, The Lives of Black Folks, and you know the the biography of Frederick Douglass and the Park Service thought or the Rangers thought that these would be good books for people to read to sort of get a grasp of the issues that were happening after 1968 the riots and everything afterward um, and it was a sort of something that I didn't expect to find but as we were digging through our cars we sort of pulled it up out of out of out of a box and it was really cool so we are going to talk more about summer in the parks. And to do that, let's listen to a track here to transition. It was released in 1974 by a DMV group, the East Coast Connection. Here is Summer in the Parks, Part 1. Summer in the parks. Summer in the parks. Summer in the parks. Hey, that's DC's own soul search. We could jam to that all day, but yeah, Noel, talk to us about the song and the East yeah. Coast connection. Okay, so you know all the research is great, but really what I'm fascinated by is like how, um, you know, we often talk about uh, parks and we think of uh, like in historical terms, we're like, oh yeah, you know, the, you know, this all this great music was or art was produced back in like the turn of the century around um, uh, sort of the sublime and things like that, and people were developing writing around um, around experiencing green spaces. Here we have a story of 1968 um, groups, young people like the members of East Coast Connection going to parks, having the experience of enjoying these bands playing, and then writing a song about not only calling out our local parks, but also in that song they mentioned the Soul Searchers. This group uh, comes from the Potomac Gardens projects uh, in Southeast D.C., uh, they were, uh, you know, one of these youth bands here in the in the area. They actually, I'm trying to see if they actually performed at any of Summer in the Parks events, but they released this EP. This EP it had this song Summer in the Parks on it. So clearly, um, it wasn't just recreation for recreation's sakes or the end result. It wasn't just people enjoyed themselves, but people were like producing music because of their experiences of having this opportunity to play in these green spaces. So I think that's always really cool. Yeah, there was a fair amount of infrastructure around Summer in the Parks. That's right. um, and again, Summer in the Parks, it was an effort to activate these park spaces in D.C. with the help of the neighborhood planning councils. The locations included Fort DuPont, Fort Reno, P Street Beach, Anacostia Park, 
Malcolm X Meridian Hill Park, um, and so many more. Yeah. People were going to concerts, going to workshops in the arts, going on fishing trips. There were city talent shows with like a cash prize that all residents were invited to participate in. And actually, one of those um, talent shows was won by um, the members who then later became the um, Experience Unlimited EU, who had the you know famous hit "The Butt." So, like, it wasn't just a one-off thing, but but. But our like local music scene, a lot of the talented uh, go-go musicians were playing at these at, at these events, um, and so that infrastructure that they provided were for stages. And once you have a stage, what are you going to do on it? Uh, you're just going to have a stage just sitting there. And so we started um, allowing youth to play or local musicians to play at these stages. And I think that's sort of where when we start thinking of that local scene. When I started t- thinking about punk. That's how a lot of these groups naturally came to these these sites. Is that the infrastructure was was designed, it was built, and we were letting youth play there. And then before you know it, like the local musicians who were making their own music, naturally started developing their own music styles and started playing at these locations. And uh, let's see. So the the National Park Service were funding summer in the parks, and then. What was the role of the neighborhood planning councils? Yeah, so basically the Park Service took sort of a backseat approach to things. They said we'd provide the the individual, like, you know, the, the, the physical labor to fix or build things. And we'll help out with some of the infrastructure and provide some funds. But it was the idea was that it was community-oriented. And so the, 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 each neighborhood got to sort of decide what they wanted, what it looked like, what sort of music, what sort of um, movies were shown there. And so what ended up happening was that people wanted to go to these things because it reflected their community, the way they saw themselves, and also what they, what they enjoyed. And so um, whereas before, or not before, but often we take a top-down approach, this is really a bottom-up approach, which I think is part of the reason that it still lingers to this day, that you know, people design things that were based around their desires, and that's a very powerful thing. And part of what made Summer in the Parks successful was really getting the people to the parks. What were the some of the transportation uh, needs, and yeah. how was that addressed? So one of the things uh, that that you know that sort of this research sort of shows is that like you know we all recognize that that um, resources aren't distributed equally on the landscape. Like you know some of us happen to live closer to the Potomac, some of us live further. And so in 1966, uh, sort of where the, the idea of Summer in the Parks was born before it was the Summer in the Parks program, there was a realization that like to get city youth to green spaces, they had to provide um, busing. And so um, the director of the National Park Service, um, George Hartzog, created an, an initiative here in D.C. to bus youth out to, you know, to Greenbelt Park, to... Um, Catoctin Mountain Park to Prince William to Great Falls to Sino Canal and so when the Summer in the Parks program started they realized they needed to continue that and so they worked with um, the busing authority to get local buses to take youth from their recreation center out to parks and so about that first year in 1968 about 40,000 youth went out to these parks out throughout the city and so they were called surprise trips and every day they would pick up like 200 to 500 youth and drive them out 
to um, um, to like local uh, to Oxen Hill Farm or you know any local park you can think of, and have events there. And it really, you know, we don't think of transportation as being this sort of integral thing, but it's really important to always think about like how people get to a place, um, because uh, you know uh, a lot of our resources are far often from where people live. And when you're talking about a 12-year-old kid, uh, they could ride the bus by themselves. But if you have a system set up where they could get, get on the bus and go there, it, it makes buy-in so much easier. And now you said uh, when they were planning for summer in the park since 1966. So this was not a, a direct right. reaction to the unrest of 1968 right. in April. This was something that was already in the works. Yeah. So, you know, one of the narratives, one of the things that unfortunately you, you, you come across when you start doing research is that you've got to tell people this story we've been telling ourselves is wrong. And one of the stories we have been saying to ourselves is like we reacted to what happened in 1968, the riots, and we were going to, we decided to come up with this program to fix um, uh, some of these social ills that we had, including like recreation issues. And clearly, when, when I went through the research, it became obvious that they were actually planning this beforehand. Um, but what I think the, the more important part of the story is that um, they were planning in 66, they did one year of busing, 67 did another year of busing. 68, they were going to do a much broader one, and it was going to be summer in the parks. But after the riots, a lot of the type of buy-in that, that they got from different organizations here in D.C. Um, became solidified, where people before were sort of in the letters I read that were going back and forth, People before were like, you know, reluctant to sort of totally buy in to doing the summer program for youth. Um, after the riots, everyone just sort of threw everything at this program and said, all right, let's see what, can, what we can do. So um, it wasn't a response to the riots, but the riots shaped the direction it took. And, and so in that way, it has this important tie to the assassination of Dr. King and what happened afterward. Now, we will talk more about some of the parks, and we're going to get into some punk and go-go discussion. But first, let's hear from Amanda Mackay, who is an individual that continues to program live music on National Parkland at Fort Reno. So, Amanda, this Thursday, July 19th, D.C. Public Library's Punk Archive team have been invited to table at Fort Reno's 50th anniversary concert series, um, now, back when we were establishing our footing as the Punk Archive, you were an instrumental advisor to our own show series, um, so we're really excited to be there this week. Um, will you tell us a little bit about uh, what Fort Reno is to you and your involvement and how, how you got to this place? Thanks. Um, so how I got to this place of this hotel is uh, a very long story, but I'll give you the short part, which is um, I was very fortunate to have some older brothers who were involved in the music scene in D.C. and got to see live music um, performed in a garage when I was nine and definitely got bit by the bug. Um, so I've had very fortunate um, upbringing in terms of the importance of community and music. Um, when I was 15, I went to Woodrow Wilson High School and was experiencing Fort Reno for the first time. And uh, that was 1985. And so it was just sort of at the, the turnover, if you will, when sort of the more the punk and the new wave were coming in to the park programming and less of the sort of heavy metal or loosely termed rock music. Um, and it sort of 
shaped my, um, I don't know, my travels around the city. So a lot of times that's where you would go, you know, if you're at a show at Fort Reno, you'd find out about another gig somewhere else, or maybe it would tie into going down to a punk percussion protest somewhere. Um, it was, it was sort of a jumping off point. Um, and I have kept with music both on and off the stage for ever. And in 2005, uh, I sort of, because of my own travels with music, I had a sort of in and out relationship with Fort Reno. It was always going. I just couldn't always go. Um, when you're a high school kid and you're running around with bands, the only time you can tour is the summer. So you end up missing a lot of what's going on in the summer in your hometown. Um, but in 2005, uh, Beth Baldwin was running Fort Reno, and she was ready to kind of exit um, to move on to her own art pleasures and asked me if I'd take on, because I had been helping out, sort of trying to help find bands, you know, in a non-official way. And so I started running the programming, um, and here we are in 2018, where... Um, Things are very, very different. Uh, yet meeting Noel, um, it has determined that while the sound may be different, the idea is pretty much the same. <laughs> yeah, and so you uh, were at a talk that Noel gave actually this last week at the Shaw Library, and I know um, during that presentation you had some takeaways that you learned about Fort Reno and the series. Um, can you share a little bit about what you learned and hearing from him and, and how this relationship with Fort Reno and the Park Service is an ongoing story? Well, I was... The NPC 2 and 3 was still in existence when I was in high school, and I was keenly aware that they were, they were the people who were running the concert series at Fort Reno Park. Um, once I started being responsible for the booking and receiving the permit, things like that, I, it just started to dawn on me that I don't know anything about what happened prior to 1982, let's say. Um, and I, was, I had met Barbara Lux, who was one of the first people to work on the programming, and um, I believe she was part of the, you know, the, the initial NPC 2 and 3, and she had told me about it being run since 1968. And I thought, well, who played here? Like, what happened between 68 and 88 even? Like, what was going on? Um, and so I've been asking around. I do know, like, you know, because uh, the first, one of the first bands I ever saw was the Slicky Boys, I was comfortable talking to them. I, so I ask a lot of the people who've been around in the punk world, what happened here in the 70s and 80s? And I got a lot of stories. I got no names of anything. Um, and um, so it was meeting Noel, it sort of, it made an opportunity to find out some history to try and tie things back together and find, um, I don't know, an ally in keeping this tradition going. That it's, you know, someone who understands um, from a cultural point of view, the importance of this tradition of free music in the park and what it means for Washington, D.C. in terms of um, this is a music town. Um, this is an art town. This is where people come to see it and, and embrace it. 
and we have to make sure that the opportunities continue to exist and grow. Um, and so it is, you know, Fort Reno serves a, a very, very important um, void, which is that there aren't a lot of places for people under the age of 21 to even get stage and audience that's not their schoolmates um, time and to be able to learn how to be a band. Um, and so it's, it's crucial. These, these outdoor events are crucial to keeping homegrown music alive. And you've done a lot of work the last few years, every year, just to continue to make this series happen. Um, will you talk to us about some of the barriers that you have come up against and the resources required to keep Fort Reno going year after year? I think that for many years, um, the concert series, it, it was sort of assumed that it was a city program because it was. Um, and so the way that it was being presented, it didn't, it, was, it didn't seem like, you know, we weren't getting funding from the city, but we weren't. We haven't gotten money from the city in probably 20 years. I don't know. Um, it has been 100% put up by all of the local musicians and all of the people who attend. Um, they, they donate their time and their money. Um, some people donate their efforts when they can't do, you know, they can't do something tangible like money, but it is, it's, it's a community effort and it can't exist without community effort. So again, learning more about the history of Summer in the Parks, you get a good sense of the original idea was for the community to have this element to present back to the community and that is still how it is being operated. Mm -hmm. You have people who are involved in the local music scene who are helping to find the the quote entertainment, I don't like the word, but you know, the bands to play and then in fact those are the people who are continuing to keep it going. Um, and it also it, it sort of um, I'm, I know I'm getting off track here but, <laughs> but it's uh you know, the idea of free music, it, um, there's a whole other element, which I like to think is the other part that's important for the, that being in a park, which is that you can't have music free of corporate um, involvement anywhere but outside. And uh, spaces like Malcolm X Park and um, Fort Reno they don't have any corporate sponsor. There is no, when you go there, there is nobody telling you anything about any product other than what you're hearing. And I think that that is really, really important for, um, I, just for the, the life of the sound. It's very different from what gets presented on the National Mall. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different, it's just a different world. Sure, it's the experience just in and of itself. And now uh, you mentioned it requires the community support, and it has from the beginning since 1968, 50 years ago. And I know, Noelle, you came across a letter that maybe proved there was a lack of that community support in uh, the Fort Reno area. Yeah. Um, what was that about? There Actually, it was not only Fort Reno, but also at um, P Street Beach. I found letters that were written of community members saying, you know, there's always, you know, when we say community, it's like this one big term, 
but there's always multiple communities living in one space and they all have sometimes competing interests. And so there was a letter um, both for Fort Reno and earlier on for um, um, P Street Beach, people complaining about like too much noise and what about parking and do we really want the youth here? So um, there was resistance uh, to it. But then there was also, uh, on the other side, uh, people arguing of the necessity for it. And so, um, you know, there's, it's, it's not a bad thing for there to be sort of people contesting how space should be used. But in the end, like, it's important for it to serve the community first. Um, and I think one of the interesting things from what um, you were just saying was that, like, that DIY um, sort of um, spirit of the punk shows is part of the reason that it's still viable vibrant community um it's not just something that if it were a corporate sponsor it's this thing that we do sometimes and then when it goes away oh well it's it it has a lifeblood that 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 flows through it that's part of the community and so it isn't just this sort of um thing that people are doing but it's it really is an effort that people are getting together and gathering in as a community not just as individuals to produce something and that's an amazing sort of story of you know we often say that dc has and there's no no one's local and there's no local culture here it's everything's transient and yet here we have in the sort of in the shadow of our monuments on park land this sort of homegrown thing that's been going on by itself for 50 years it's an it's an amazing story so uh, i commend the people who did it because you know i'm only sitting back here just finding stuff but people actually did the work and that's the most amazing thing and part of this story is the transfer of the actual permit. And do you want to talk a little bit about how that works? And maybe, Amanda, like the things you learned in <laughs> inheriting a permit and uh, what that means? Uh, well, it was actually, um, in my case, I can't speak to anything other than my case. It was pretty simple. Um, Beth said, do you want to do this? And I said, Sure. And she called the ranger Brenda and said, Brenda, Amanda's going to be the person now. And so then after that, it was just a matter of Beth showing me, this is how you fill out the form. And, um, and then I, you know, I had, because in the initial year, Beth, we sort of shared it. She did the, the permit and I did all the booking. But in doing all the booking, I had to communicate with the ranger frequently. Um, so she and I, we created a relationship in that first year. So then the next year when I actually was the person who was applying for the permit, she already knew who I was and it was sort of more seamless. Um, But it, you know, I don't, and this is one of the things that I'm hoping to find out in my journey into the past with Fort Reno, which is I'm now super curious who else had the permit and how did that happen? Like, how did it go? Because I don't have any, I just know about the people in the neighborhood and Beth. Yeah. And that's, there's a lot of stuff in between. So when, when I'm hearing this, I'm like, it's like a really, it's, you know, she's uh, portraying it as like this real, like real straightforward thing. What's fascinating is that there's other sites, including the drum circle where there's a permit and the permit holder has some sort of like, uh, I don't think that they would outwardly acknowledge it, but there's like um, they have uh, a level of, of seniority in the way that things are conducted, and it's not just a passing on. It's like a passing on of the of like the of the title to the next person to sort of be entrusted in like protecting this thing. 
Uh, the drum circle has got a very similar thing as well, where it's been passed on from one person to the next, and then they're entrusted in like not only um, filling the permit out, which is like the the rudimentary basic thing, but also <clears throat> perpetuating the cultural elements of it, like the, the the very specific particulars that make it what it is, and so. Um, it's like almost a sacred thing that you do by continuing this this yeah. this, pro- this process, um, and I think that's a that's a really cool thing, you know. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I do. I will say that. I mean, I explained it in a very sort of casual sense, but every Monday and Thursday in the summer, and then every day in the rest of the year, I do feel a great responsibility in terms of making sure we don't upset any of the residents. We don't um, damage the park in any way. We don't, that nothing happens in the park that would ever um, cause this to end under my watch because um, I have, I now have this, this thing that I'm trusted with, which is this concert series, which means so much to so many people for very, very different reasons. Um, And they want to be able to keep it going. And, and, you just don't know. You don't know. Like if something happens, can we ever get it started again? Yeah. So it is, it's a, um, it's a, the permit is, it's just a piece of paper, but it's also a very important piece of paper. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now let's talk about the music. Um, how do you think the Summer in the Parks initiative really specifically affected the punk and the go-go genres that we hold so dear to us here in dc you want to take that a platform you go ahead and start i honestly i think that um i would love for the park service to take full credit for creating the the, their music scene but it 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 was the case i think it's just providing youth space to perform uh and allowing them to gather um, allowed them to sort of develop their own like musical vernacular and like from there you know the kids made their own their own music um, we just happened to be the right place to, for people to get together near a school um, at, Fort, at Fort Reno near a lot of different things centralized um, what I think is really cool about it is that it was totally not our intention to have this happen but in having sort of this space to provide for people to get together at um, magic occurred like people mm-hmm. made their own music and um, it, I love those sort of happy accidents where it was unintentional but yet here we are 50 years later and I think that the um, the other at least for Fort Reno it's the relationship between the Park Service and the DC government because the mayor's summer youth employment program had a major effect on the Fort Reno concerts in the mid 80s to the mid 90s um, and there are many people who play there now who got their first taste of, of playing live because their job with the Summer Youth Employment Program was to be in a band and make a recording and play a show. Like, that was what they were supposed to do. Can I ask a question? Yeah. I've heard a lot of people say that, like, a lot of those uh, youth were making, that were working were making photocopies <laughs> to make the old... The old flyers uh, when they worked for the for the federal government. I mean, the, the state, the city government. The NPC. Yeah. They, yeah. I mean, a lot of people would like to know what happened to that copier. Yeah. Because um, it would be great if we could have it in Enshrined the DC punk somewhere. archives. Yeah. 
So um, how is the showmobile run? How is the Park Service responsible with DC Parks and Rec for bringing the showmobile? Because this is actually such an interesting um, relationship where you say punk was born from SYP in DC, was supported by the SYEP uh, youth, and this is the same for GoGo. This also holds true with yeah. the showmobile. So the showmobile uh, was this sort of portable stage. Um, uh, sometimes it would have like jazz, I think it was the jazz ambassadors or youth ambassadors um, playing there, but they also had other bands performing. And so there was a, it was an effort coordinated between the DC Parks and Rec and the National Park Service to have events, sometimes on a National Park site, sometimes adjacent to it or at a DC, um, DC Park and Rec site. Um, but <clears throat> a lot of the performances by, by the bands that we think of as seminal go-go bands uh, or musicians who then later joined sort of Chuck Brown's band, Chuck Brown's band uh, were at these um, showmobile um, uh, sh- uh, performances. One of the strange things is I was chatting with some of the uh, youth, or they're not youth anymore, but retirees who were youth at the time who drove the showmobile and uh, it looked like there was a very um, amorphous relationship between the Park Service and the DC Parks and Rec and who drove the van and who filled the gas up. And so we had a former park ranger who said, yeah, sometimes I drove the showmobile and sometimes I got out there and played the bass with them. So clearly there was, you know, sort of a desire to bring this to these sort of programs and these shows to the community and by any means necessary they did it so and we're going to wrap up here very soon but um amanda you had you had mentioned that you're so curious about what happened in the years of the 70s and the 80s and i know noelle you've been actually starting to uncover a little bit of that utilizing dc public library collections uh the quicksilver times and the unicorn times are two newspapers published in, in during that time period that we've digitized, and they are available on digdc.dclibrary.org. Can you tell us what you have found briefly? Um, yeah, that's hard. Uh, <laughs> sorry, there's a, there's just a lot. Uh, it's first off, it's worth going to your, to the website and yeah. going through that. It's worth just reading the Unicorn Times uh, and the Quicksilver Times. Amazing um, um, newspapers. The fact that you guys have them digital, it's the only place that I could find them. And as I went through them, I got an idea, a sense of like basically the weekly shows that were happening from the 70s forward. Um, and there are a lot of bands that I'd never heard of. Um, some musicians who were blues musicians who sort of have fallen off of our radar but are very important for a local scene. Um, and, you know, of course, when this report that I'm working on is all completed, you can always read all that there. But if you're interested in what is there, you should just go to the DC Public Library's website and search through it. I think it's worth reading the Quicksilver Times, and anyone who's out there listening, you should do some reading on, on that 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 um, newspaper. It's an amazing one. So, and if you're curious, you can also visit us this Thursday at the Fort Reno concert, which starts at seven o'clock p.m. The DC Punk Archive will be there with some of our collections, and we'll um, be glad to answer questions and direct you to all of the content that you can access as a DC resident for free. So thank you so much to both of our guests. Noel, thank you. Amanda, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been an episode of the DC Public Libraries Presents on Full Service Radio, broadcasted live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, DC. 
For more information on DC Public Library programming, collections, and this year's People's University Initiative, visit dclibrary.org 1968. Follow us on Instagram at DC Public Library and on Twitter at DCPL. Download this show wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Full Service Radio, DCPL Radio. We'll leave you today with a track recorded at Resurrection City on the National Mall in May of 1968 by cultural documentarian Bruce Jackson. This recording is on loan from the Library of Congress American Folklife Center. This is The Birds of Paradise. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 